All right, we're going to go into our study of God's Word, so if you'll take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Zechariah. There are some notes in the back uh, on the welcome desks uh, over the last two, these last two chapters, uh, Zechariah 7 and 8. I put them, uh, put them together, and uh, you can fold those up and read through those chapters again and see uh, the flow of, of the argument and uh, where, uh, where things are. On uh, January 10th, a uh, couple weeks ago, uh, there were tens of thousands of people that gathered at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. As we come to this passage, we started last week in chapter 8. Uh, the theme of this chapter is the restoration, the future restoration of, of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. I have a, a, some PowerPoints of this kind of I take a peek at if he's got it on here. I need to turn mine on here. There we go. There we go. Um, it's a picture of uh, my brother who's given us a, a devotion a couple years ago when we went to um, Israel there on the Mount of Olives. And you can see um, the Temple Mount in the background always um, you can point out uh, the Dome of the Rock. And... Uh, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a pretty picture, and in other ways, um, it, uh, it's very sad uh, to see that structure that is on uh, the, the mount and so much uh, turmoil and upset that happens there. This is a picture at night when we first came. That is the wailing wall in the background, the security that you would go through. This is coming down the steps that you would come down in the area where they have cleared so you can go right up to, um, to the wall. Uh, and uh, there's a picture of my dad and I in the evening time uh, where you were right down in this area, the platform. You can kind of see how clear it is. Of course, this is probably a normal uh, type of scenery when you come at uh, this time of, of night. And you know the Jewish people, when they come, they come to pray uh, at the Wailing Wall. And all throughout the cracks in those uh, Roman stones um, are prayers that they would fold up and stick in there and uh, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. There's a picture of an Orthodox Jew that's there off to the left, and then my brother off to the right there. And when you go, if you go into that area and you want to walk into, it's divided between the women on the right side and the men on the other. There's a, a dividing curtain between the two, and, um, and all of the men have to be heads covered, and the women have to have a shawl. Uh, they put put on when you go uh, if you're going to go there or uh, go down to, into that area you have to have a head head covering uh, to go down in that area this was a picture during the day the next day when we were actually going on to the temple mount this is the the um, uh, you can actually get up on on the top of the temple mount so this is kind of overlooking and you can see a little bit more of a crowd there there's men women sitting uh, men this would be the men's section the, the women are, are right underneath the photo uh, there's chairs, you can go down in there, you can sit, you can uh, read, and uh, they pray, and they stand there. They're, then they'll have, obviously, their parades where they would do the, the bar mitzvahs uh, that, would, uh, that would take place. Uh, during that day that we went, obviously, there were some soldiers that were being sworn in. And so they come to the Temple Mount, have a special ceremony, all stand at attention, and, uh, and take their oath um, and I wonder if, if some of these young men um, are uh, any of them that are fighting in, uh, in the Gaza Strip right now. 
Um, and uh, so several there probably were maybe about 75 of, of the men that were there. Um, but I did that to show you the picture. This is the picture that was taken January 10th. Tens of thousands of people that came into the Jewish area. There was plenty of room in this picture, if you guys are there, but there's nothing but standing room only. It came down here, and people are still flooding in to that little area, just packed in a few weeks ago. And um, over the loudspeaker, there's a loudspeaker there, uh, they, uh, they recited prayers. Uh, they read from passages of the Psalms. And I thought it was interesting, one rabbi in the article that I read, actually, he prayed this in front of all of this crowd here. He prayed this. He said, we stand here on the eve of the month of Shavuot to cry out in the pain, in the anguish, in the hope. Save your people. Bless your inheritance. We stand here united. There are no tribes here. There are no camps. We have learned our lesson. We stand in prayer before you as one person. May it be your will to renew this month for us your good and for blessing, a month of redemption for the captives, a month of victory over the cruel enemy, a month of good news, salvation, and comfort. And you imagine standing on the steps, hearing the Psalms read by thousands and thousands of Jews, and then hearing a rabbi stand up with his garb and praying a prayer such as this. It sounds familiar of something that we would read out of the book of Zechariah, does it not? It sounds something that would come right out from the Old Testament. Crying out for God to save them, for God to rescue them. Now maybe in the context of this prayer, it's talking about you know, Gaza and, um, you know, Hamas and you know, Hezbollah and all of these other Iranian-backed groups. And uh, they're praying for temporary relief. But I wonder if there is in this man's voice and in the people of Israel, especially with the Orthodox, there is a spiritual longing for redemption, for peace, for salvation. I mean, the Jewish people, when you think of Israel and Jerusalem you think of, of God's holy city. We still call it today in America the Holy Land. Why do we call it that? It's because it's God's chosen land and they are God's chosen people. And uh, Christianity's roots go back to Judaism and to the Old Testament. And uh, the apostles themselves were Jews. But we also, as I took this picture of this gentleman who's standing, sitting, older man, reading the Hebrew scriptures, um, I thought about the cry of God's people for redemption. But the problem is, they have rejected the Messiah. And when we come to Zechariah, we come to another call for the salvation of God's people and a promise that God gives to his people in Zechariah chapter 8. Look down at um, chapter 8. And verse, um, verse 6, this is where we left off last week. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it will, it is, if it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant, the small, the small group of people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, saith the Lord of hosts. For thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people. 
From the east country and from the west country I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You that hear these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord of hosts, was laid, that, temp that temple might be built. Now, just as, the, it, um, just as a, a stopping, we, we read the, the whole chapter last week. I just want to stop at that portion and that point. If you're looking down in your notes, when you get down to verse, uh, at the bottom of the first page there, in chapter 8 and verse 6, when the people see what God is going to do. What is it that God is going to do? The previous verses. God is jealous. He burns with love for his people. They are the apple of his eye. His great jealousy that burns with love also will protect them. God will return and dwell with his people. Jerusalem had been abandoned by God. Ezekiel prophesied and saw the glory of God that had left Jerusalem and left his people as they all went into captivity and Nebuchadnezzar burned the land and burned the temple. And the glory of God departed from the Holy Land. And then we talked about last week that Ezekiel, later in Ezekiel's prophecy, he sees in the future God's glory is going to come back just like it left. He's going to come back and he's going to dwell with his people again. God's name and God's presence will be with them. Remember we ended last week that God is going to bring peace and safety in verses 4 and 5. And there's going to be old people, aged people, and young children walking and playing in the streets with laughter and peace. All the Jewish people have longed for this to happen, and it it's never has. Not during Zechariah's day, not during the Maccabees, which would be in, the, in between the Testaments, not during Jesus' day, and it is not happening today. You can't go into the streets of Jerusalem and you're not going to hear laughter and joy and children playing. They still wear solid black. They still weep and mourn if you go into the streets of Jerusalem. Things are still very solemn in the Jewish quarter when you walk through there. there there's not much joy in the Holy Land. Now, they, they enjoy the fact that they have their own land and they have a nation. But there's constant war, there's constant fighting, there's constant um, a political unrest, and there has been all the way back. So what Zechariah is seeing in verses 4 and 5, he's clearly seeing a time that Jerusalem has never had yet, a time of peace and safety and prosperity. And when that takes place, when God saves his people, when God brings Jerusalem to a place of peace, people are going to say, it's marvelous. And the word marvelous that is used here in the Hebrew means it is beyond one's power. It's the same word used in Genesis 18 and verse 14 when Sarah laughed at the prospect that she would have a son in her old age. And the angel responded, is anything too hard for God? That's the word marvelous. It's translated here in the King James marvelous. It's also used in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17. When again, God in Jeremiah 31, that's the prophecy of the new covenant, 31 and 32, connected together about the future covenant of God that, he's gonna cut, that he has cut with his people already, but that he will fulfill. And the question about that covenant in Jeremiah 32 is, is anything too hard for God? 
God loves to do the impossible. When you look at verse 7 that I read earlier, uh, it says God will save his people from the east and from the west. In other words, God will bring his people from the farthest reaches of the land. Notice both directions. In Zechariah's day, when the people returned back to rebuild the, the, uh, the temple, and when Nehemiah came back several decades later to rebuild the walls, what direction did they return from captivity from? They came from the east. Has, has there ever been a time where Jewish people have been scattered in the west and have returned from the West. Well, the only time that the Jewish people were ever scattered in the West was post-70 AD under the Romans. That's when they went into captivity and they went to Egypt, they went to Europe, they went to Rome, they went to Asia Minor. After World War II, the concentration of Jewish people who returned from the Holy Land, those came from Europe. Do you know where the largest population of Jewish people live today? In 2022, the number was 7.3 million Jews live in the United States. Compared to 7 million that live in the nation of Israel. There are more Jews living in America than live in the Holy Land. Now, there could be a possibility that that number may have swapped a little bit this last year if the numbers in Israel have, have changed. But can you imagine when, when the end time comes and God ushers in that tribulation, takes home, I believe, the church, and the holocaust that's going to go on during the tribulation under the Antichrist, if that were to happen right now, Seven million Jewish people will leave America in the West and go back to the Holy Land. And so this is a time where God is going to bring back his people back to the land from the West and the East. In Zechariah's day, it only happened in the East. No Jews returned to the land from the West because they were not taken captive. They were not spread out going West. They were only taken to Babylon and Assyria. So this is clearly something that is being seen in the future, one day in, uh, in the future, a portion. And in fact, Isaiah prophesies that this will happen in Isaiah 11, 11. Listen to what Isaiah says. The Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. He shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather them together that had been dispersed of Judah from all four corners of the earth. Isaiah 43, 5 and 6. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy posterity from the east. I will gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. I will say to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons, bring my daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth, back to the Holy Land. This is a call that God is going to bring back his people to the Holy Land. And I contend that these verses, as well as Zechariah, did not take place fulfilled in the time of Zechariah. Verse 8, when that happens uh, in verse 8, I will bring them and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. 
my people. They will be my people. We know from other portions of Scripture, such as Hosea 1 and verse 9, do you remember the names of Hosea's children? If you studied through Hosea in any, any fashion, do you remember there's a play on Hosea's children when he was named? One of the children is called, I can't remember the Hebrew word, but it means not my people. Remember that? And it was because it was being used as an object lesson. Hosea was to name his children for what God had, done, had, had abandoned because his people in rebellion had separated. And then the other child that was born would be my people. So he's got two children, one whose name not my people, one whose name is my people, and the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Then God, there will come a time where Israel will no longer be call, called God's people. But then God will return to them and call them again my people. Wait, the Old Testament states that Israel will reject God and God will reject them. But after a time of intense trouble, this is some, just some collective passages that talk about this, it talks about Israel being rejecting God and then God in turn rejecting them. And then during a time of intense trouble and tribulation, they will then return to him and he will return to them. Does anybody know a time when the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah and his offer of the kingdom and because of that God moved to another people and leaves Israel in the dark? Only one day to come back and make them his people again. After a time of intense tribulation. That will eventually cause them to look on him and whom they have pierced. You, you see a timeline there that kind of fits in. Okay, biblical perspective. Where they will be cast off. God will turn his attention to a, another people. Not that they replaced his people, but that in their darkness, they have been forsaken, but he put them aside. He turned to a new people, engrafted them in, and became their God, and then will again come back to his people and rescue them and bring them back in after a time of tribulation. It fits in Zechariah, fits in the book of Revelation, it fits in the prophecy of Jesus and um, fits fairly well in my understanding of Scripture uh, when we see this. This is still yet future. Right now, Israel is in darkness. Paul says they have, they have bl been blinded. They stumbled over the cross, if you want to say it that way. That's what Paul says. And because of that, the cross that was a stumbling block to Israel has become a stepping stone and a cornerstone to us as Gentiles. And one day that cross will come in the light as they see the truth and they are brought back to see the truth after an intense time of tribulation. Then they will return to be called the people of God again. Zechari Zephaniah, interesting enough. Turn over to Zephaniah chapter 3. We don't often go to Zephaniah. So when we get an opportunity, we might as well go there. In fact, can you remember the last time you were in Zephaniah? I, I can't really... Remember, Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 20, the last verse of Zephaniah. At that time, at what time? At, at the time where he will save her, 
where he will undo the afflicted, when he will gather them from a sorrowful assembly, in verse 18, at a time where he will rejoice and bring joy and they will rest in his love and will joy over them with singing, verse 17. When that time comes, I will bring you again. Even in the time that I will gather you, I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. That's how the book of Zephaniah ends. There's a prophecy there. God is going to do this. Um, just in your reading, I read in my devotions the last couple of weeks, Isaiah chapter 11, 6 through 12. Isaiah prophesies a time where God is going to bring back his people and he's going to bless them in the land. Isaiah 65, 19 through 25. A time where they will live in, in, the, in their holy land with peace and safety and be his people and he will be their God and he will dwell in their midst. This is a time that I believe is reserved for the millennial age where Jesus will reign as king of kings over, um, over all the nations of the world on earth. And uh, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 both record that for us as we are seeing in Zechariah chapter 9. So when you move over to your notes, you see that there's three sections on the back side. There's three sections remaining in this chapter. Verses 9 through 13, Zechariah is going to challenge them to be strong. In light of the future hope, this is what God's going to do for Israel. You need to be strong and be faithful in obedience in the presence of trials and suffering and hardship and do the hard thing, but hold on to my promises. Verse 9 tells him to be strong. This is the word here, my words. Let your hands be strong. This word be strong means to be courageous in the work. We find the word courage here. We find the word um, uh, strength. He tells them, remember what I told you. And in light of what I told you, you be strong. This is what, let your hands be strong. Just like when the word that I gave to the prophets in your days and the building of this temple, and now you're seeing it complete, just like I fulfilled that promise, I will fulfill these promises as well. He says in verse 10, for before these days, there were no hire a man, nor hire a beast, Neither was there any peace to him that went out and came in because of the affliction. For I will set all men, every one against his neighbor. So he's talking to them about the former days in verse 11. But now I will not be unto them the residue of this people as in the former days. He said, do you remember the way it used to be? When I abandoned you, your crops didn't grow. There was no rain. You were hungry. You were thirsty. God gave you no food, he gave you no money, he gave you no fruit, there were no physical blessings. What happened to the land? It became barren. And then verse 11 and 12, God says, I'm going to do all, I'm going to, just like I, I disciplined you, I'm going to turn it around. Verse 11, or verse 12, he says, for the seed shall be prosperous, the vine will give her fruit, the ground is going to give her increase, the heavens are going to rain with dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these things. Just look at what I'm going to do for you. So, God is going to be the source of their blessing. It's important for us to understand you cannot have physical blessings until you first accept his spiritual blessings. There's going to be no peace in Jerusalem 
until his people turn to him and accept him as Messiah. God's not going to give them peace. God's not going to cause their vine to grow. God's not going to cause them to, to run in the streets and to enjoy the blessings of every neighbor having peace with one another until they first accept the spiritual blessings and the spiritual promises that he offered to him. Now, Warren Rearsby states two things about the material blessings that we need to take note of, and I thought this was interesting. One, we must understand that we do not obey God just to become wealthy and secure. Material blessings are not bribes to get us to love God. God doesn't use spiritual blessings to say, come, come on, come on, I, I, want you to, I want you to love me, so if you love me, I'm, I'm going to give you a little extra paycheck here or there. I'm going to provide for your family. I'll give you health. I'll give you a nice car. I'll give you a nice, if, if, you'll, just, if you'll just give a little extra money in the offering plate, I'll, I'll bless you. If we only obey the Lord so that we get, then we're serving him for the wrong motives. It doesn't mean that God doesn't reward. When we get to heaven, God's going to reward us with crowns. Rewards are a motivation, but they shouldn't be our highest motivation. Our highest motivation ought to be a love for God. Not because we're scared he's going to you know, zap us or we want the blessing so we need to do good so he'll give us a treat. See what I mean? And, and Israel's gotten that backward. They want God to give them the treats and the rewards, but they don't want to obey his word. God says, you don't have it that way. You obey my word, and then I'll bless you. But you don't obey my word, so I'll bless you. That's not your motivation. Your motivation should be love. Highest motivation. The second thing, and this is important, God does not always respond with material blessings to his faithful. Poverty is not a sign of being forsaken by God. Read the book of Job. The book of Job destroys the idea that suffering and poverty are always the result of sin. That's not the case. Job's friend said, if you will confess your sins, then God will bless you with riches and material goods. They were wrong. But doesn't David say in Psalm 37, I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread? Wearsby states this about that, that, that verse. This isn't a promise to every believer at all times in all places. For many believers have died in poverty and hunger. This is a generalization that proves true in many cases. God knows our path. He knows our direction. We are safe and provided for in his will. But sometimes God chooses to do something different. That doesn't look like material blessing or physical health. So just because you have some, some physical problems or some financial problems or some trials or sufferings that you're going through does not mean that it's a source of some kind of sin that you've got unconfessed. I'm just not doing things right because God's not blessing me. It could be that God's plan and purpose for your life is that you go through that suffering like Job so that you would be a blessing to those around you, would give glory to his name. He's decided in that circumstance, in that situation, he knows what's best for you, so he has withheld his hand of what we see as blessing. 
So that, that's hard to swallow because we want to see if we do right, then God will bless us. That doesn't always happen. Now, in the long run, I'm talking about earthly blessings. In the long run, there is always the reward for the faithful because we're not seeking an earthly kingdom. We're seeking a heavenly kingdom. Our eyes are not on health, wealth, and prosperity. Our eyes are first set on the kingdom that is to come. That's where our mind is to be. That's where our goal is to set. That I may not have anything on this life. I may lose it all for the cause of Christ. Whether that's as a faithful Christian in America or a missionary on the foreign field. You may lose it all. Or like, uh, or like uh, William Carey or Adoniram Judson. You may lose your family and your children and your wealth and, and be poor. But yet you're serving faithfully to God. There, God is keeping a record and keeping account. And one day when we step out into this life, we step into the next. He will say, well done thy good and faithful servant. So the intent there is about sometimes we've got to be careful about physical blessings. And Israel got this backward because they wanted all the goodies, but they didn't want to be faithful. They wanted the wrong motivation. They were doing it so that they could, uh, you know, uh, get a tally off their list so that they could get the blessing the next day. And they took it for granted very similar to the Jewish people when God gave them every day manna from heaven, every day quail from heaven, provided water and kept their shoes on and their clothes, but yet they griped and they complained every single day. It was never enough. And they tempted God. So just, just the comment about physical blessings, but this is a promise that, that is going to be to the nation of Israel, but they're not going to experience that that blessing until they first accept him. That's why at the end of verse 13, it's sandwiched again with the same promise that he began with in verse 9. Be strong and don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong and don't be afraid. You see, when we are afraid, we become weak. When we get our eyes off of God and off of the right focus like Peter did in, and, and fear creeps in, then all of a sudden weakness comes because we're relying upon the flesh and we begin to sink. God is telling him, take courage. Be faithful. Don't be afraid. Fear brings an absence of faith. We become crippled by fear. and When our heart is weak, our hands won't work. And when your heart is strong, your hands will be strong. So he connects this here with courage and their hands. In other words, keep working, keep being faithful despite the suffering and the opposition you feel because you, one day your faith will become sight. God will bless you. Again, verses 14 through 17, this is what God requires. I read these verses last week just as an indication from you. You can see that. God desires well. God wants good for Jerusalem. God desires good for his people. In other words, God's thoughts for his people, and that would include you, God's thoughts for his people is desired the best. If we give in to the devil and the lies when things start going wrong, we think that maybe God doesn't want best for us because he's given us a bad hand. But God always desires best. His thoughts towards us are always good. Verse 16 the favored people will be well-pleasing people. 
In other words, God's saying, when I give you grace, then your gra- the grace that you've received will then come out of your life and come to those around you because they see God's grace in your life as you show grace to other people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So what does God require of, of, of us? Verse 16, speak truth to your neighbor. Do right and live peacefully with one another. Be in harmony. Don't think evil of those around you. Don't love to lie. These are the things that God hates, and if God hates them, then you should hate them too. That's what it says at the end of verse 16. And he's reiterated that because he said the same things in chapter 7 in uh, the previous chapter. These are the things that God requires of his people. And then God answers, finally comes to the answer of your initial question from chapter 7 and verse 3. Do you remember two weeks ago what the initial question was? Do we continue to fast? Do we weep on the fifth of the month or on the fifth month? You remember those, those guys that were come from Bethel that came all the way to come and ask the question of Zechariah and the priest in the temple saying, do we have to keep doing these fasts every year? God spends two chapters talking to them about their heart and what he's going to do. And then finally he returns to their question. In verse 18, the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month And by the way, the one of the fifth month and the one of the seventh month and the one of the tenth month, all four of them, shall be to the house of Judah this, joy, gladness, cheer, a festival, a feast, love the truth and love peace. That's what the Lord says. That's his answer. God is going to take their fast and he's going to turn them to feast. He's going to take their mourning and he's going to turn them to rejoicing. He's going to take their memorial days and he's going to turn them into holidays. Listen to what Isaiah 65 and verse 19 says this in that prophecy I mentioned to you earlier. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. I will joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. He's going to take away their tears. He's going to take away their weeping. He's going to take away the mourning. No longer will Jewish people come to the wailing wall and wail. They will come to the wailing wall. will no longer be called the wailing wall. It will be called the rejoicing wall. And they will come and they will sing and they will dance and they will praise the Lord with joy. I'm probably sure they'll take all the black off and all the hats and the garments and all those things off and they'll put their happy pants on. That'd be a very different holy land all right, than what we see today. Life will change. By the way, the happy pants goes back to um, uh, chapter 3. Remember when Joshua was robed in dirty garments and he told them to take off your dirty garments and put on your festival robe. Change out of those dirty garments and put on your happy garments. All right? And, and that, was, that was an interesting metaphor that comes back here again. This is what God is going to do when he does that in truth. And look at the last two verses, verse 20. He says, thus says, our last few verses, thus says the Lord, it shall come to pass that there shall come people in the inhabitants of many cities. 
And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come, and they will seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and they'll pray before the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, talking about the future, it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even will take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you. For we have heard that there is a God with you. So interesting in this passage, there are going to be the ratio of 10 to 1. In other words, for every one Jew, there will be 10 other uh, languages represented. Showing that there will be many Gentile nations who will be distinct from Jewish people in the millennial kingdom who will come and worship. Israel and the Jewish people will be a very small minority compared to the thousands upon thousands of Gentiles who will travel to Jerusalem. In other words, they will say, I want to go with you. Israel will be God's missionaries. Do you remember what David said when he killed Goliath? He said, I do this so that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. That's why I do this. I want everyone to see, as he holds Goliath's head out, I want everyone to see that God Jehovah is the only God to worship and serve. That's what God intends Israel to be. That's what he intended them to be in the Old Testament, a blessing to all nations, so that all nations could come and see and worship the one true God. And that's what God intends for Israel to be in the future. Is that they will look to the nation of God's people and say, if God could save those stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stiff shoulders. What did I say in the notes? Anyway, it's in the notes. Where is it in the notes? It's actually in the notes in chapter 7, verse 11 as well. Stubborn shoulders, stopped ears, and stone hearts. That's what it says in the verse. If God can rescue and save those people and after thousands of years bring them back into this small little area after seven years of turning from him finally bring them back where they uh, accept him as their savior and then give them all of these blessings what nation whether it's from Mexico or Canada or Germany or uh, Kenya or anywhere else is going to say we got to go serve a God like that if they're going to let those type of people in this is, it's just amazing. They will come and they will seek and they will pray. Just like these two men who were coming to Jerusalem seeking God's favor and praying for an answer to their question, many people will come from all over the world to Jerusalem and will take hold of a Jewish person. For every one, there'll be ten. And will hold on to his skirt and say, Take me to Jesus. I heard that he lives here. This is similar in a spiritual way to what the church is supposed to be doing. We have heard that God is with you. We want to join you. Something is happening at Calvary Baptist Church. God 
is worshipped there and God's presence is there and Jesus is lifted up there and there are people who are not mourning but weeping and happy. We want to be a part of that. I'm not saying that's a fulfillment of this passage. I'm saying it is very similar to the light that we are to have to this very dark world, to what God is going to do with his people one day. The world needs to see the peace and power of God in the lives of the believers, and it will draw them to him and say, I want a God like that who will take sinners and forgive them and, and take their tears and, and make them rejoice. We need, we need to go to Jerusalem, and we need to worship Jehovah. We need to see Jesus. What a... What a you see, everybody thinks, well, in the, in the millennial kingdom, what are we going to do? We're going to be flying around, you know, banging on our harps and, and singing all the time. No, you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be crowd control for thousands and millions upon millions of people who are going to be traveling every day to Jerusalem to see Jesus face to face. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to be a doorkeeper. And I'm going to let people in. And I want to be as close to Jesus as I can. And I probably, Pastor Crawford is going to be leading the music somewhere, all right? Praise the Lord. And, and that is. But you cannot have the physical blessings until you first hear his word and obey his word from the heart. And that's what, that's what the Jewish people, Jesus said the exact same thing. You have ears, but you hear not. You have eyes, but you see not. Your hearts are dark. Father, I pray as we close tonight. Thank you for the promise of the Messiah that has come into this world to make it possible that we can be redeemed and saved. And Lord, as we look at a, a very old passage of Scripture, it's probably very rare that we even read these chapters. And we see some, some very important future promises that are one day going to be fulfilled. When we show pictures of modern-day Jerusalem and people weeping, because of the turmoil, Jewish people by the tens of thousands that gather at the Wailing Wall, praying that you will save them. When the Messiah came and walked on those very streets, and your people, he came into his own, and his own received him not. And because of that, you've cast your people into darkness. You've moved to a new people of God. Not a replaced people, God, a new people of God from all tribes and nations and to come and worship, not as a nation, but as, a, as an organism, as an institution, as a church, as a body. And then one day you're going to return to your people. And the evidence that they live in the Holy Land today just reiterates to us that you're not finished with your people after 2,000 years and that your promises are going to be fulfilled. And one day, um, Gentiles from all over the world will travel on planes and trains and cars and boats and camels and whatever way that's going to happen in the future. And they can't wait to run the streets of Jerusalem and see Jesus Christ face to face. And you will dwell with your people and you will be in the midst. And uh, what a joyful time that will be. And uh, Lord, we look forward to that day. If we, could, if we could step out of this life and step right into the next, it would, it would be a joy. As Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die would just be gain. 
And, uh, but Lord, you've got, a lot, you've got a lot of work that you're still, still doing before you get to that point. And a lot of people that need to be saved. There's going to be a lot of tribulation that's going to come one day in the future to bring, to bring your stubborn people back to recognize who Jesus of Nazareth was and is. Bless us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.